0: former U.S. Army paratrooper, historian, and conspiracy analyst, Tony Arterburn, joined by top researchers and guests, exploring the depths of our hidden history, expose the crimes and cover-ups that plague our civilization and planet, and patrol the borders of our reality. 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 From the parapolitical. To the paranormal in the psychological war for your body, soul, and mind. Be a paratruther. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Paratruther. I am your host, Tony Arterburn. Today I have a very special guest. I've, I've, uh, wanted to have this gentleman back on. He's been, he's been with us since 2019 on the Arterburn radio transmission back in the San Antonio days. And, uh, one of the original, <laughs> one of the, one of the founding fathers of the truth movement, if I say so myself, uh, authors of the shadow of power, uh, truth is a lonely warrior. A tornado in a junkyard 13 pieces of the jigs i'm going off memory here james this is the great james you're doing
1: you're you're absolutely on a spot on there
0: yeah uh lo- love your work uh so glad that you're here and uh, you've got a new book out it's called missing saints missing miracles mm-hmm. and this is a little bit of a a break from your your normal work which is you know uh, conspiracy new world order alternative history which you do a magnificent job on always a Christian undertone in what you do.
1: Uh, as a matter
0: of fact, I've thanked you, thanked you on air before for, for really leading me back to to Christ in a lot of ways that I had felt like I had, uh, because of um, uh, the church and my upbringing being so ultra Zionist and, and uh, warmongering, I just felt disconnected from my faith for a while after I got home from Iraq
1: reading Uh, likewise
0: likewise i was not in iraq but i had the same experience with zionist churches i know that you did i read your work and it just really flipped a switch in me and i just feel so much more comfortable in my faith now and understanding that history and and what happened so uh what you say is, is is it has a lot of weight with me and uh wanted to have you on to talk about this new work and um let's you know let's just kind of start from the beginning it's missing saints missing miracles and uh, what what led you to write this? What's the subject matter before we get started? I mean, what uh, what, what would you like to lay the groundwork with? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I should talk
1: probably a little bit about how I came to orthodoxy. And, and I want to mention that um, the very beginning of my book uh, is called uh, <clears throat> A Brief Message to My Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical Friends. Because... Um, even though this book is written from, uh, Orthodox Christian perspective, which is still, you know, making forays into, uh, American consciousness, uh, in, in, since, uh, the, uh, um, mid to late 20th century. Um, I wanted to make it clear to others that you know, I come from a diverse background. I, I grew up in an agnostic home. We didn't go to church on, on the except on the rarest occasions when, you know, when my sister needed a, a, uh, uh, pastor's recommendation for uh, entrance to a certain college. We went to church for two or three weeks just so we could talk to the pastor and get the recommendation. That was that was about the extent of our church participation. Um, so I, I, when I was 20 years old, I was a total atheist. And then um, being very unhappy with my life, in many respects, I uh, joined up with the New Age movement, which had certain attractions to it. This was from 1972 to 1982, so a full 10 years. Before i finally saw through it and i said you know what I, I can see plainly with my own eyes that this is a deception those things they are saying that are not true so i got out of that and i had uh, in 1978 i had read uh, gary allen's book none dare call a conspiracy which is my wake-up call to the new world order and i saw from him that the people who opposed the new world order were primarily christians and i started to develop this affinity towards and I became a christian in 1983 and i spent um uh, more than 30 years in evangelical churches and uh but the problem was that um i uh eventually ran into the zionist element um very strongly and repulsively and um uh i i think to explain what happened uh with going to orthodox i need to talk a little bit about not just my experience, but what happened to the church itself. You know, for the first thousand years, there was basically one Christian church. There were a couple of schisms and uh, sometimes there were heresies, which would be condemned by what they called ecumenical councils. There were seven convened over the first millennium. Um, but basically it was one uh, Christian church. And it's very interesting. If you take a look at uh, the first major church historian, Eusebius, um, he talks about a guy named he- Gisippus. And Hegesippus was a Christian who went from city to city, and he went to Corinth, and he went to Rome, and he went from to many cities, and he found wherever he went, this is in the second century A.D., that the Christian doctrine was the same. It was not like today where you go to one church, you hear one thing, and another church, you hear another thing. Everything was, was laid down by the apostles when they established the first churches uniformly. And so it was a one Christian church for the first millennium, and nobody asked what your denomination was. But then in 1054 A.D., Constantinople uh, was the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Vatican in Rome split. And there there was more than one reason for this, but the primary reason was that the Pope of Rome said that from now on, he had sole authority over the church. But this had not been the case With, with due respect to my Catholic friends. This has not been the case for the first millennium. When the ecumenical councils met, such as the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there was a vote taken. And you had people there, the patriarch of Constantinople and Rome and Antioch and Jerusalem and Alexandria and bishops from all over Christendom. And they would vote as to what was a heresy, what wasn't a heresy, and uh, what the, the modern pra- the, the current practice of Christianity should be. But in 1054, the, the pope ex- claimed exclusive authority, which was unacceptable in the East. So in 1054, the Vatican and Byzantium split, and from that point on, from 1054 AD, the only exposure the West had, we in the West, was to the Vatican um, until the 1500s when Martin Luther came along, and Martin Luther, of course, had some, some reasonable, legitimate grievances with the Catholic Church, but the problem was, and I think he would have regretted it, Martin Luther, if he saw what was going to happen, but the church began splintering into tens and hundreds and then thousands of denominations until you couldn't recognize Christianity anymore. And, um, you know, Henry VIII, uh, started the Anglican church, the church of England, simply because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And that's the whole reason that church gets started. It's kind of ridiculous. And, um, uh, then bringing it up to to kind of modern times, um, in America and, and, and try to tie in my own experience. Um, you know, i was an atheist for many years and one reason was I, I believed in darwin's theory of evolution well darwin made a very interesting statement which i quote in this new book um this is a quote from uh, 1873 where he explains his true purposes you know darwin said this he said quote lyle who was an evolutionary friend of his lyle is most firmly convinced he's shaken the faith in the deluge meaning the biblical flood far more efficiently by never having said a word against the bible than he did if he had acted otherwise i have read lately morley's life of voltaire and he insists strongly that direct attacks on christianity even when written with a wonderful force and vigor of voltaire produce little permanent effect real good seems only to follow the slow and silent side attacks end quote charles darwin 1873 so, so darwin wasn't really adv- interested in advancing science his goal was to make people think that uh, there was no God, no creator. And what he proposed in his book on the origin of species, you know, I've got, a, I've got two books on, on Darwinism. And um, uh, I've got one of them here. Um, this came out in 1999, tornado in a junkyard. And had a smaller one come out later for people who couldn't read a big book called The Case Against Darwin. Um, Darwin was, uh, claimed uh, that uh, life began by uh, chemicals randomly forming the very first cell. And then that first cell became multicellular and became uh, uh, invertebrates, then fish, and the fish came ashore and they became uh, amphibians and reptiles and mammals and apes and men, right? That's That was Darwin's theory, okay? But Darwin t- fooled the public. He tried to put this on the same level as chemistry and physics. You know, chemistry and physics consist of laws like the boiling point of water, which you can establish through observation, repetition, testing and proof. But Darwin's ideas, like the idea that uh, apes lost their hair and became men because they preferred mates with less hair, that was based on his speculations about things that happened millions of years ago that you could not observe, you could not test, you could not uh, prove. Um, So Darwin said that um, in his book on the origin of species that the first cells came about randomly. Now, first of all, science is based on observation and who has ever seen cells come about randomly from chemicals coming together by chance nobody's ever observed that number two cells w- w- were thought by darwin to be very simple and he thought that uh, you know just a bunch of phosphorus and carbon and a few other chemicals you get self a, a living cell no he didn't know about dna he didn't know about um uh, the genetic code and sir francis crick who won the nobel prize for co-discovering dna said that the chances of getting one protein by chance, as Darwin had claimed, and there are thousands of different proteins even in one bacterial cell. Said the chances are one in 10 to the power of 260, which any mathematician will tell you is totally impossible. And also Darwin never explained this. If the first cell was created by chance, that means that for evolution to continue, that first cell before it died must have completely developed and perfected the process of cellular reproduction. Because if it didn't then never would have been a second cell so the evolutionary process would have stopped right there so so in my book um tornado in junkyard if you if you go to my website gameprof.net I've got um, to scroll down on the home page there's an interview there uh, which is the most watched interview you know my my rep, uh, mentioned that, uh, another uh, podcast or uh, SGT report it was the most watched interview ever it's called God is real and it had three million acknowledged views on youtube before they censored the video altogether but we can still see it um so um darwin had now cleared the path for direct attacks on christianity and this became a it bifurcated it was a, it was a two-pronged attack on the one hand the rockefellers began uh funding what they call the modernist movement and this is the uh 1890s that began this they began funding seminaries that would uh, say that you know the bible we don't really know who wrote it. It's not authoritative. We don't really believe there were any miracles done by Jesus. There's no resurrection. He didn't die on the cross, um, et cetera, et cetera. There was a modernist movement funded by the Rockefellers, and it continues to this very day. And this take, took 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 over in the um, most of the mainline Protestant denominations. In fact, just to give an example of how the Rockefellers tie into this, in 1922, um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was the... Uh, Pastor of uh, First Presbyterian Church in New York gave a modernist sermon, and he said the Bible didn't have any authority. There were no miracles, no, no resurrection. Jesus wasn't coming back again, etc. And this caused outrage in his church. Well, guess who then hired him to become the pastor of his church? It was John D. Rockefeller. Immediately hired Harry Emerson Fosdick to become the pastor of Riverside Church, which John D. Rockefeller built at a cost of four million which back in those days would be probably 100 million today. Um, And uh, by the way, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick's uh, brother Raymond was the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm just trying to show you how the Rockefellers tie into the Modernist movement. And if you read my book, uh, uh, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, I have a full chapter on the Modernist movement and Rockefeller's involvement in it, but you can read it for free on my website, jamesperloff.net. Now, cartooning the modernist, and I'll, I'll end off soon, I've been talking for a long time, I know, uh, were the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists said, hey, we believe the Bible, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the miracles. And it was this kind of church that I attended, but what I didn't know for a long time was that they they had been hijacked themselves by the Rothschilds um, in what's called the Schofield Reference Bible, which came out in 1917. The Schofield Reference Bible said that the Jews must return to Palestine and take it over, Um, and the Christians should support this. It's very interesting. The the Schofield Reference Bible comes out in 1917, the same year as the Balfour Declaration, in which which, uh, the British government promised Lord Walter Rothschild and the Zionist Federation that they would would establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, even though Britain never had been in Palestine in all the years of its history, and though the sun, sun never set on the British Empire, they'd never been in Palestine. Until they signed this declaration with Lord Walter Rothschild. Now, shortly after that, America declared war in World War One. Even Wikipedia admits this was a quid pro quo. The Zionists promised Britain that if they uh, issued the Balfour Declaration, promising a Zionist Jewish homeland in Palestine, they would bring America into the war. So that happened. But Woodrow Wilson waited for that declaration of war until the Tsar had abdicated. And the Bolshevik Revolution occurred in Russia. Why did Why did uh, Wilson wait? Very simple, because he knew that if America declared war and joined World War One, the Tsar's position would be strengthened in Russia, and he'd no longer have to abdicate. So all these events of 1917, the Balfour Declaration, the Schofield Reference Bible, the American Declaration of War, um, and the Bolshevik Revolution all are sequentially occurring exactly according to satan's plan and i have to say that zionism along with globalism and communism are all parts of the antichrist new
0: world order which has been taking shape for many centuries now yeah the history books will tell you there was a sinking of the lusitania but that happened in 1915 you know they say it was a a reaction to the sinking of the lusitania and you you know was that may of 1915 and wilson got us he ran uh for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war in 1916. And then he gets uh, re-elected, uh, waits for the inauguration. Then you're right. He waited until what was it? We declared war in April. So it was after the czar had abdicated. You're exactly right.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I actually have a full chapter, um, a full blog post. Um, and that's also in my book, uh, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw. Um, uh, I have a full chapter on, on the Lusitania. And uh, absolutely, Lusitania was carrying war munitions uh, uh, using civilians as a shield of the British ship, not an American ship, but it happened to have American passengers on board. And the Germans torpedoed it because they were trying to prevent these munitions, which included, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, um, uh, uh, of uh, uh, everything from uh, rifle cartridges to um, uh, uh, naval explosives for for mines um that were were stowed in her hold and this is why the Lusitania went down in just 18 minutes after hit, being hit by a single torpedo and those World War I torpedoes were very small it blew up and it sank in 18 minutes because there were so many munitions that, that detonated when that torpedo hit uh that was a British plan the Lusitania was sent directly into the path of a British U-boat the U-20 south of Ireland on the direct orders of Winston Churchill, who was then head of the British Admiralty. And I can give you a quote from uh, the, the uh, British naval officer who is the, the greatest uh, historian of our British naval intelligence. This was a deli- deliberate plan by by Churchill. But absolutely, uh, Wilson tried to play that for all he could to get us into the war. But in 1916, yeah, you, you're quite right. It was May of um, 1915, the Lusitania sick, sunk. But in 1916, Wilson, to keep his um, himself in office, had to uh, talk about he kept us out of war, and as soon as he reelected, he immediately moved to move us into the war again, which occurred in 1917, the year after, shortly after he was reelected.
0: I remember a quote from Winston Churchill about World War One. Uh, you know, he was first Lord of the Admiralty, but uh, his failed invasion of Gallipoli. You know, the the whole uh, debacle that happened there. I think that was like 1915 or so. It was about the time of the Lusitania, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, he said, uh, nothing will stop me from uh, going forward with this delicious war. He really loved it. <laughs> he loved
1: it. The- yeah, uh, Winston the- Churchill has been uh, lionized as a hero. He was no hero. He was a slave to the bankers who bailed him out more than once um, when he he lost money in the, in the stock market. And uh, eventually, um, of course, they, they made him prime minister uh, following the defeat at uh, Dunkirk. And although the British should have, acknowledged defeat at that point, Uh, he was persuaded by the bankers to continue the war by, although he had no armed forces capable of going back onto the European continent, he uh, began bombing Germany. And I have to say quite honestly, and this this can be uh, validated from members of the RAF, the Royal Air Force, uh, Britain bombed German cities for three months before the Germans finally retaliated in the hopes that retaliation would would put an end to the war, but it didn't. Uh the, the banksters were absolutely determined to take out Germany and uh to uh pursue that war further.
0: Yeah, and it was the British, I believe, that had the concept of the total war bombing civilians first. I mean that's uh right. I think that's right. pretty well documented. And of course you can look at the end of the war with the bombing of Dresden, just how awful, what a war crime that was. And uh I mean it's it's called the good war, James. <laughs> so we're supposed to we're supposed to like it. Um so you know you Getting back to your book, uh, you know, you uh, come from this background of uh, researching uh, conspiracy and new world order and globalism, and really it's Satan's plan. What was the original title to Truth as a Lonely Warrior? What, what were you going to title it?
1: Oh, it was, that was the title, uh, as far as I remember. Um, uh, I,
0: I, I remember talking to you once, and you had, you had discussed it.
1: Oh, it was something uh, about Satan,
0: mm-hmm, but
1: Satan's I, I uh, somebody uh, advised me that putting the word Satan in there was uh going to uh repel a number of people and, and think that the book was not credible you're right I, i'd forgotten about that there was in fact i think i even did mention that in the intro um to the the uh
0: the book you're right um it was like satan's i could i've got it on my shelf too i should find it but it's like satan's plan to to rule the world or something like that and and i just thought, yeah
1: satan rules in the world that was going to be the original title but um, a lot of people don't believe in God or Satan or the spiritual world. And so I was advised, and I think it was good advice, not, not to use it as the title.
0: That's a magnificent title. But I know, I guess what I wanted to say, I know where you're coming from. And uh, that's why I respect your work so much. And so what, you know, you're, you've are you come to uh, Orthodox Christianity. And this is, you're coming from a, a totally different background into that. Um, and that's primarily, you know, the Eastern orthodox right mm-hmm.
1: that that's exactly what it is and we forgot about the eastern orthodox for a thousand years in the west we forgot they basically existed and uh, we thought it was basically a protestant anglican catholic world and uh we totally forgot about the eastern orthodox and um well i can explain uh, how i got into orthodoxy uh, i was um like you i was attending fundamentalist churches but i heard to started here some really strange things i started here A lot of pro-war propaganda saying that the war in Iraq was to defend our freedoms. Even George Bush didn't say that. He said it was to get rid of weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist. And um, but they were defending the wars, very pro-war, very pro-Israel. And um, uh, they started to say uh, some really weird things. One one thing they did was um, they started to um, they had to celebrate the Jewish Feast of Purim. They said, you know, for part of today, we're not going to be a church. We're going to be a synagogue. And we want everyone to pretend you're a Jew in a synagogue. And they passed out these kazoo-like instruments. And we're celebrating the Feast of Purim, which is um, not only a, 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 a Jewish celebration of being relieved of their enemies, but also a uh, celebration of the slaughtering of um, their enemies. And uh, knowing what, if you know what I know as much to do about critical race theory, you um, as I looked around me and I saw people celebrating Purim, they're almost like they were celebrating their own deaths. Um, it was a really weird, and it was what I w- I would call um, Christian sheepalism. It was like, you, 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 even though that we're, we're not supposed to to follow Jewish customs anymore, um, people were doing it because the leaders of the church told them to. And I, I looked at another Christian across the aisle. I mean, we both looked at each other and we shook our heads. We knew this this wasn't right. Um, and I heard um, a lot of um, really uh, unchristian things in, in this church. One was that the period of grace under Jesus is only temporary. We're going to go back to having Jewish animal sacrifices. And I thought, holy cow. I mean, the the the, uh, the book of, of Hebrews says that Jesus paid the price once for all. We no longer need animal sacrifices or a, a temple priest. They said, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to have... A, um, jewish animal sacrifices again and they also said that when jesus returns he's going to rule from this jewish temple for a thousand years which is based on one passage you know uh, revelation 20 it's very dangerous to base a doctrine on on one passage especially when that passage um is to a certain degree symbolic which a lot of revelation is but um if you look at jesus um in his own uh, ministry here on earth he never wanted to be an earthly king they tried to make him an earthly king he 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 ran away when they tried to make him an earthly king but also um well also along with that he said my kingdom is not of this world okay and also um uh, jesus said this is very important in matthew 24 say we weren't to look for him in temporal places he said uh talking about his second coming he said so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And quote, that's from Matthew 24. Uh, so Jesus said, don't look for me in the inner rooms, but my my Zionist church, my fundamentalist church was saying, look for him in the inner room. But here's the, here's what I, I consider the clincher on this. You know, the apostle Paul in th- uh, two Thessalonians described who will actually rule for the temple and it's not Jesus. Here's what he said. Again, two Thessalonians, quote, concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness meaning the antichrist is revealed the man doomed to destruction he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called god or his worship so that he sets himself up in god's temple proclaiming himself to be god and quote the apostle paul now here he's clearly saying that the man who claims he's Christ in the temple is going to be the antichrist. Yet my Zionist church was saying, no, no, that's going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to rule from that temple for a thousand years. I said, this is unscriptural. It's actually completely contrary to the scripture. And so I had to get out of there and I got out of that church fast, but I was really um, uh, dumbfounded for a little while because I said, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be in a modernized Rockefeller church that doesn't believe anything but I don't want to be in a Zionized church and I'd never been Catholic, but I knew that the Catholic church, and this confirmed to me by Catholics who are conservative, that their church has been in heavy decline ever since uh, what they call Vatican II in the early 1960s. And their church has been heavily infiltrated both by communists and Freemasons. Um, Now there are conservative Catholics who are still doing their best to uphold the church, but the Vatican um, did not have appealed to me when I saw that the Pope issued a 269 page encyclical on global warming i said you know this is not quite the church for me then i looked i suddenly i I discovered the orthodox church and i found that uh well i don't want to go over all the reasons i went i became orthodox but I, i should mention um some of them um first of all it was not modernized and it was not zionized in fact um in my entire history of the uh orthodox church i've never met encountered one zionist christian one christian zionist and in um my owning uh been baptized and chrismated in the orthodox church for five years i've never met a single christian zionist i've met anti zionists i've met syrian christians who have been bombed by israel and they are anything but Zionists, believe me uh, but i've never met a single christian zionist unlike the fundamentalist churches uh, but beyond this the the uh, orthodox church um, worshiped as the original Christians did going back to the fourth century, the liturgy that we primarily use is that of St. John Chrysostom from the fourth century, which is a century in which Constantine legalized Christianity. And uh, one of the great things about liturgy, I know some people think, well, that's boring. It's the same from week to week. It's not really the same from week to week. It's, you have different hymns, you have different scripture passages being quoted. You have a different sermon, but the sermon in an orthodox church usually lasts about 5 minutes in a protestant church it goes on for about 40 minutes and what happens is in I, i'm not going to over generalize but what often happens is the the pastor becomes the centerpiece of the um worship service instead of Christ but in the orthodox church the communion service which is done with consecrated bread and consecrated wine is a centerpiece christ is the centerpiece the the priest takes a backstage. He's a minor figure in the Orthodox service. And there were other things. One thing I'll mention, there, there are five or six more things I can mention, but one thing that struck me was that Satan, who has a long-term plan, knows whose worst enemies is. And the worst persecution of Christians in history occurred between 1918 and 1926, when more Christians were martyred under Lenin and Trotsky In those eight years, then of all the Christians martyred in all the centuries before combined. We're talking about tens of millions of Christians put to death. And of course, this continued under, uh, these were Orthodox Christians. And of course, it continued in 1932 and 1933 with the Holodomor, which was the uh, deliberate starvation of Ukrainians by Stalin. Seven million died, including three million children. Again, these were Orthodox Christians now. I like to point out and I point out in my book that there were other Christians that had been martyred and non-Orthodox Christians had been persecuted. Uh, I would never deny that. But the most persecuted church in history, I don't think there's any denying, is the Orthodox Church. The fact that Satan knew that the Orthodox were his worst enemy was one of the things that helped uh, draw me into Orthodoxy. There are several other reasons I went to Orthodoxy, but I don't want to belabor it. Um, I haven't even touched on what my book is about yet. <laughs> so I don't want to go too far into this.
0: Well, again, let's, you know, let's talk about your book. Uh, you've got, you know, we've got a good segue from, you know, why you joined the Orthodox Church. And 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 I wanted to get back to the, just to briefly, uh, as we go into this, the Council of Nicaea, uh, you know, we talk about the, that's really where the the different books were selected, what was going to be in, what was going to be out. Am I correct mm. on that? I mean that's always what uh, yes. I-
1: that's where they basically established the canon of scriptures. What uh, was uh, to be in the Bible, what was not, and that's why, why I think we should give some due respect to the Council of Nicaea and the early Christians because they were not the ones who established the, um, the the Bible as we know it today. Um, so I, I think that um, they deserve uh, you know a little um, respect and uh, what they had to say on on, uh, on ecclesiastical
0: matters okay well good I wanted to get your perspective on that is there is there any break in the Orthodox Church as opposed to you know the the Catholic Church when it comes to um, the, the writing and the in the different books and what was what was in what was out I mean you talk about things like the Gnostic Gospels and things that float around that uh, weren't included is there anything that the Orthodox Church picked up or um, you know has that the Catholic Church or the West doesn't
1: Uh, Yeah, there are some uh, books that are considered, uh, that are in the Orthodox Bible, that are considered less uh, canonical, such as the books of Maccabees and uh, the book of Tobit and the book of Judith. Uh, These are considered uh, less authoritative, um, but they were included uh, as being important uh, books of the Bible, but they were tossed out. When Martin Luther came around I should mention by the way Martin Luther also tossed out the uh book of James because it talked about works I mean, Martin Luther was all into um faith only and so he tossed out the book of James but uh you know it was reinstated into the Protestant Bible but um yes it was the original Council of Nicaea that uh decided about the uh canonicity of the uh the original uh books of the Bible and uh this this is an important point to remember
0: Let's talk about early Christian history and the uh, Synaxarian, did I say that right? Yeah,
1: you, you said it perfectly. And uh, you know, the um, the uh, uh, Synaxarian is, uh, is a uh, remarkable book. Um, it's actually in seven volumes and it's over 4,000 pages long. Uh, it's uh, called the Synaxarian, the Lives of the Saints of the Orthodox Church. And the reason I I started to read this book was I'd been in the Orthodox Church for a few years, but I I never studied much about ancient Christianity ancient saints. Uh, You know, by the way, to to clarify the word saint, in uh, Orthodox and non-Orthodox churches, the word saint is used to describe any believer. But in the Orthodox Church, and this would be true of the Catholic Church too, a uh, a saint whose capital S would be, a commemorated saint someone who's been recognized by the church for extraordinary virtue extraordinary service to others sometimes martyrdom uh, not infrequently martyrdom and also the working of miracles and um when i uh picked up my first of the seven volumes of the the synaxarian i said well i'm just going to read this one volume and you know could edify me um, spiritually. And the reason I started to read this Synaxarian was that um, there was a very venerated saint of the uh, Orthodox Church in the 20th century named Saint Paisios. He he lived in a little hut on uh, Mount Athos in Greece where there are 20 monasteries and uh, a very poor man, but a very spiritual man. And people came from all the world over to uh, to seek out his counsel and his prayers and his advice. And... uh, he made a remarkable prediction uh, about uh, the, uh, the uh, mark of the beast. Here's what he said. This guy died in 1994. He said, uh, a vaccine has been developed to combat a new disease, which would be obligatory. Those taking it will be marked. Later on, anyone who's not marked will not be able to buy or sell, get a loan or get a job and so forth. My thinking tells me that this system, a vaccine system, is what the Antichrist has chosen to take over the whole world. And this guy died, pre- reposed or died in 1994. So this was a remarkable prophecy by him. And I, I I felt I should take his word seriously. He said, read from the lives of the saints. Now there's a lot of books called the lives of the saints, but the Synaxarion, which took over 10 years to compile. And again, as I mentioned, is uh, over 4,000 pages long. I was reading it and I started to, discover things about the history of Christianity that I never knew before. And he said, wow, this is, this is amazing. I, I never knew that before. I never knew that about that person before. And including figures in the New Testament. And then I um, also read about miracles. And um, there's actually a uh, very uh, relevant quote from Jesus about miracles. Here's what he said in John 14. He said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the, for the very works sake. Believe me for the very work's sake. Certainly seems he's talking about miracles there. And continuing the quote from Jesus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. End quote. Now, uh, when I was in evangelical churches, I was told rather consistently that there were no miracles after the book of Acts. All the miracles stopped after the book of Acts. That was just something that Jesus used to jumpstart Christianity. When I read the Senexarian, I'm reading from the 4th century, the 7th century, the 10th century, the 14th century, I'm seeing miracles as well as church history that I had never known about. And I said, you know what? People who are in the West don't even know about this stuff. And um, I felt that it was my duty to read the whole 4,000 pages and then give a very uh, condensed version of this history, missing history and missing miracles that we didn't know about in the West. Now, I know that some people will We'll doubt this and we'll get into that. Um, I address the doubts and the skeptics uh, in, in the book because I know there will be those. I would have been a skeptic, you know, back when I was an atheist. I would have said, oh, that's just a bunch of BS, you know. But um, I, I get into all that. But we could talk about some of the missing history and some of the missing miracles. And then the the um, other thing I like to talk about is that everybody who did a miracle in the Synexarian, and this is drawn from hundreds of manuscripts from dozens of countries from Ireland to Greece, to Russia over many centuries, they all had one thing in common. They all had one thing in common. There was no variation in it. And I said, this is, a, this is absolutely amazing. I have to um, write something about this um, to my Western brethren, to at least give them an opportunity to know about these things. Well,
0: what was it? What was the, what was the common thread?
1: Okay. Um, well, um, I'm a little bit uh, uh, ahead of myself when uh, we get to that, but um, uh, well, I do want to talk about the missing history and the missing miracles and what they were. What's we'll with... um, <laughs> I just
0: got to uh, get okay. curious on that line of logic. There's this one. Oh, oh, okay.
1: Okay. What was true of the miracle working saints, and we'll get into these. We definitely need to get into these miracles of what they were. Uh, and they were uh, basically duplicates of Jesus miracles, but, um, But they all had in common was incredibly rigorous obedience to Christ at a level that is almost unimaginable to us in the West. So uh, I think there are four things I could I could mention that would call our attention to this. The first of these would be um, you might remember that in Luke 18, Jesus spoke to um, a rich young man who was quite obedient uh, to the commandments And Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Um, You need to give what you have to the poor. And the young man went away sad because very rich. Well, if you look at the uh, miracle working saints, we'll get into those people uh, soon. um, The way they usually started their ministry was by giving away all their worldly goods to the poor. By the way, this is not like communism. Some people think that's communism, giving you goods to the poor. No, no, no. Communism, when the government takes it from you by force, This is quite different from the saints who would give it away voluntarily. So they gave away their worldly goods to the poor or to the church. The second thing they did was to withdraw into isolation. And you might recall recall that Jesus went into isolation. He went to the desert and he went into um, the mountains. And um, he advised people when they fasted and prayed to do it in isolation, not in front of men for their praise. So they would go into isolation in a monastery room or um the desert like John the Baptist or a cave and a mountain. And um they would actually spend uh I would say on the average years um overcoming what we call the old man, repenting and overcoming what we call the passions. Now what do we mean by the passions? Well um uh you know I've never seen in the Eastern Orthodox Church the phrase seven deadly sins but I believe that it equates to the passions. These would include Um, seven deadly uh, sins would include pride, greed, anger I have a a big problem with that myself, envy, lust gluttony and sloth and um, it's an interesting thing before these men became teachers of men or priests or abbots of monasteries they would first conquer themselves, conquer what we call the old man in Christianity it wasn't a matter of taking a theology course like we think today, get a PhD from some seminary no, no, you had to conquer yourself first before you became teacher of men. And um, uh, uh, for example, uh, Saint uh, Peter the Egyptian who lived in the 4th and 5th century said, For as long as one is dominated by a passion, he cannot be called a servant of God because he's a slave of the passion he serves. And he cannot therefore teach others how to free themselves from it. So this is a requirement of the early saints to overcome your old self. Wow, that took a lot of doing that took getting away from society and all its temptations. The third thing they did was real fasting. Now you might recall that Jesus fasted for 40 days in in the book of Acts. We see the apostles fasting and these guys, when they fasted, they really fasted. I mean, they weren't gluttons. They, they would eat bread, some of the way only bread and water or dry vegetables near where they, they uh, had their uh, hangout. Um, But they didn't eat rich foods. They denied self. They carried their cross. They denied self. The fourth thing they did, I have to say, is, um, as St. Paul advised, um, but we almost never carry out today, and certainly I haven't, they would pray all day. Literally, they would pray all day or meditate on the scriptures. And through these things, giving away their, their goods to the poor, conquering themselves, their passions, praying all day and strict fasting, they grew in closeness to God the closer they grew, drew to the character of God, the more was their ability to carry out miracles, which we'll get into the specifics of next, I hope. Um, this was the absolute common characteristic of all miracle workers. There was no such thing as a miracle worker who was a casual believer who said, you no, know, Jesus paid it all. I don't have to do anything. All of them live their lives in strict obedience to Christ. Something that we've, I have to say that by and large, was lost sight of in the West. I don't hold myself up as an example of that. I know Catholics who are more devout than I am and attend mass more often than I go to orthodox services. I know uh, evangelical um, missionaries who go to poor countries for years and give themselves over to service to poor people. I haven't done that. These people outshine me. I'm not holding myself up as an example. I'm just saying what, the 4,000 pages of the Senexarian, drawn from multiple centuries from multiple countries, says about the miracle workers. It was strict obedience to Christ that led to miracles.
0: And you talk about like the schisms and all the breakups of the church. I think that makes it harder for people to find true faith or to find that. That calling where you give your life up for something because it mm-hmm. seems confusing. Does that make sense? Like, I see there's so many different factions, and like, you don't really, if you grow up in a certain kind of church, like a modern church, you're really not going to learn about the true Jesus. You're not going to learn about that. You're going to learn about some of the doctrines and dogma surrounding that, or whatever particular branch of faith that, or church mm-hmm. that you're in. Or I, again, you just, it, you, it misses so much of the mark. And uh, well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you've taken up this task. This is an interesting, really interesting subject matter. I wanted want you to continue to talk about the time we have left. We got about uh, 17 minutes. We can talk about some of the miracles, and then yeah, we can talk about how you know what uh, what America would need to make that happen here. This miracles, right. I, I I don't think that miracles stopped happening. I don't think that God just left and you know there wasn't there's nothing going on anymore. I think that's a a very cheap way of not having to um i'm not having to adhere to uh, christian principles in my opinion i mean god still works in people's lives and anyway i'll let you talk about america
1: well um one of the things i mentioned in my book was that america kind of got started off on the wrong foot you know we one of our founding principles was um the pursuit of happiness you know and um my friend, Henry Mackall, likes to say, you know, the main cause of unhappiness is the pursuit of happiness. You know, if you, you set your, your sights on, um, your life's ambition is to have the, the dream job and the dream home and the dream spouse, you'll probably be disappointed, not necessarily. But um, this is not how the saints live. They they live their lives to please God, not to seek happiness for themselves. But um, getting back to what Jesus said, he said, believe in me, the name of the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, fairly, verily, fairly, I say unto you, he that believes, on I me, mean, the works that I do, shall he do also. So let's uh, start going over the miracles that the post-biblical saints did. And um, as I pointed out on uh, another broadcast, I didn't even start taking notes on this uh, until I saw how many miracles there were. I just was astounded. But this included um, all, almost all the miracles Jesus did, healing the blind, healing lepers, healing paralytics, Uh, casting out demons, raising the dead, multiplying small amounts of food to feed large amounts of people, and this would be during famines is when this occurred, Um, halting storms, walking on water. There were a lot of saints who walked on water, Um, prophesying the future, knowing the thoughts of others, enabling fishermen to make a miraculous catch of fish, changing water into wine, and even moving a mountain, which I think is probably the most elusive of all uh, miracles but i give two examples in the book and uh when the book was in publication I, I discovered a third example which i didn't include in there um uh but they even did miracles that jesus didn't do because he said you no know, there were other miracles that he didn't do that uh, other future saints would do that included halting plagues halting droughts and even turning back the flames of a city fire. Um, it was, a, it was absolutely amazing to me. So I, I may be wrong, but I think my book is the only one that actually takes the miracles that were done, uh, catalogs them by type of miracle and then shows chronologically for the most part, um, which saint did these miracles in which century and where they did them. Um, uh, and I also have uh, two chapters. Uh, addressing whether or not these miracles were real or not, because again, and those are going to be many, many skeptics. Um, some people, um, and I get into this, I have a, the second part of the book is where called Where the West Went Wrong, and I think that's probably going to be the most irritating for a lot of people. Um, but um, uh, a lot of people think that um, uh, you should follow uh, Martin Luther's principle of Sola Scriptura, don't believe anything unless it's in the Bible. Well, frankly, most of these miracles occurred after the Bible was written. So how can expect them to be in the Bible. And um, the other thing is that when I was in evangelical churches, nobody actually practiced solo scripture. They were to read all kinds of books about Christianity from James Dobson, C.S. Lewis, Rick Warren, uh, Bible commentaries, biographies of uh, modern theologians, um, devotionals, uh, Bible study aids, uh, you name it, they would just go on and on and on and on. They would trust these modern theologians, but somehow the early church records from the first, second, third, fourth centuries A.D. will be dismissed because they would say it's not in the Bible. Actually, this is very contradictory. They believed a lot of stuff that wasn't in the Bible, and uh, my own belief is that the closer you get to the original apostles and uh, who were passing on Christ's teachings. The closer you get to the truth, people don't have to accept that. But I do believe uh, that these miracles occurred, and I do believe that they occurred because these people were uh, obedient to Christ in a rigorous way that we've really lost sight of in the uh, West. For example, the idea of once saved, always saved. Is, you know, I, I heard that phrase a lot in evangelical churches. But you know, none of the uh, miracle-working saints ever said anything like that. They believe that their entire lives were to be dedicated to Christ. Um, uh, their, work, their their entire lives. That, would they fail sometimes? Absolutely. But they would pick themselves up again and go back to working for Christ. Uh, in other words, a commitment to Christ is a lifelong thing. And um, it's not an easy or casual thing. It's not just a matter of going to church occasionally. Um, if you're going to work miracles, and that's what America needs right now, uh, in my opinion. This is one reason why I wrote this book. I, I've sort of um, um, lost a lot of my hope in elections and, you know, geopolitical solutions to the satanic um, overrunning of our world by Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and George Soros and these kind of people. I believe that we need divine intervention at this point, and I believe that a spiritual path might just be our best hope at this point.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know. As we've been talking, I was thinking how we opened up the conversation to, uh, talking about 1917, and if you if you look at Russia being kind of the cradle of of Eastern Orthodox, would you agree with that that the that mm-hmm. Russia is really the cradle of, of this of this particular uh, branch?
1: Uh, after uh, Russia was a cradle after the fall of Constantinople in 1453 by the when it was conquered by the Ottoman Turks. At that point, Moscow was called the Second Rome. Or oh, I'm sorry, the third Rome. And uh, Russia, from that point on, was a center of orthodoxy until the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, very interesting how um, these centers of Christian,
0: Eastern Christianity were targeted. Uh, right, and the they situation. were targeted by the banksters and the Satanists, the Luciferians, and you know, to establish what you would think of as the proto-globalism, which was the Soviet Union, the, the Bolsheviks and uh, worldwide communism. And of course that dissipated, and uh now Russia is facing the entire world again in some way. Like the it's like they're the same mm-hmm. factions, same people tar- like triangulating there. And it's interesting. Like we, you know, we look a hundred years later, we're looking at the, almost the it's not the same thing, but it is very similar, you know, the of the, mm-hmm. the opposition to Russia and, and uh its uh being host to the Orthodox church. And, and when you talk about missing saints and missing miracles, it starts to make a lot more sense. I mean, it's not just, and maybe it's not just the fact that, uh, that Russia is more nationalistic and anti-globalist and uh, anti-central bank. I'm not saying they're perfect and I'm not a Russophile saying this is, this is something, I mean, obviously there's a reason why we gave Ukraine $76 billion and, you know, right. a why we're on the brink of World War III with these psychopaths in charge of our country. I mean, right. if if you're Russia would you, you don't want our, we don't have morals, you know, like we're, I mean, you, you don't want the acid of, of Western modernity on, on your civilization. It's a civilization killer. And so I think they were yeah. smart to recognize that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's
1: interesting. Um, uh, I was in the John Birch society for a long time and I wrote for their magazine, the new American and a book came out in 1984 called new lives for old by a, a KGB defector, Anatoly Galitzen. And, um, He predicted that, uh, you know, this uh, stuff about Glasnost under Gorbachev is just a bunch of uh, BS. And they're actually Russia is going to go back to communism and they're just trying to disarm the West. But uh, for more than 30 years, I kept waiting for that prediction to come true. But I kept waiting. I saw that Russia was becoming more and more Christian. I found that they'd established, I think it's 30,000 new churches in Russia. And then meanwhile, America. Was declining into communism. Not Russia wasn't reverting to, to communism. It was us who was falling into communism. And uh, you know, look at the, the 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 gay marriage and the transgenderism, and the abortion and all the other evils we have fallen into. And I said, wait a minute, um, we got this uh, backwards here. And I actually wrote a post about the end of uh, Obama's administration called "The Unthinkable Has Happened: Russia and America Are Trading Places." Wow. And I'm not trying to be a Russophile either. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they have their problems. Um, and I, you know, people write to me saying that uh, Putin's a total fake. On the other hand, I see him, his behavior in uh, church is very correct. Um, and that he's done a lot for the, the people of Russia. So I, 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 you know, I guess the jury is kind of out for me on that, but I I don't believe what I thought before about this is all just a KGB trick. Um, uh, America is what's in trouble right now. America is the, Probably the worst example of morality in the whole world right now. Um, I, this uh, uh, a president who wasn't even legitimately elected is is just signing papers that are pushed in front of him, and bringing our country. Uh, it, it's almost every single thing that's done in our country right now, whether it relates to the food supply, vaccines, healthcare, um, uh, you, you uh, the culture, you name it. America is being uh, deliberately destroyed right now I don't see anybody with a true sense of Christian values cannot see this and can believe that this is just happening by chance and coincidence that what's unfolding in America right now is quite deliberate and uh, I agree with uh, whether we, we we take a favorable position on Russia right now I just think that this destruction we're witnessing of America is undeniable this is why I think we need uh, absolute repentance and uh, a turning towards the narrow path that Christ said um,
0: is there. But if you find it. Well, that's where we have to look. You're not going to look to politicians or men yeah. solve mm-hmm. this and we have to turn to God. And I mean, that's, I mean, again, I'm with you. I'm don't look to me for an example. I'm just doing the best I can. I don't hold right. my, me too. anything. I'm just, uh, I recognize some of these issues and uh, you know, I was thinking about the end of the cold war there was that, that Soviet propagandist who said, um, again, you know, you wrote The Shadows of Power when well, 1988. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a different, so totally different country, you know, end of the Reagan administration or mm-hmm. you know, getting into the, the Bush 41. The Cold War was coming to an end, and, and nobody thought that possible. And all of a sudden it's gone. You know, the Soviet Union broke into 16 pieces, and one of the Soviet propagandists said, um, we've done something far worse to you than beat you. We've taken your enemy away and now you're lost. And man, mm-hmm. are we lost. Mm-hmm. Like we just everything went just crazy. It went had Then you had the project for New American Century, you had mm-hmm. the, the, the neocons, and the, the was it seven countries in five years? And I mean, I, I was mm-hmm. part of that. I was part of the, you know, the um, post 911 invasion of the world. And, uh, I mean, and just look at everything that's happened since then. You can just see this massive decline. I don't welcome it. I don't want it. I just talk to people about it. And, uh, I did, I think books like this are really important because you can get back to history and what matters is that, that phrase that, um, I think Buc- Pat Buchanan said a couple of times, is back to the catacombs, you know, that's of course, it's a Catholic, mm-hmm. reference. it's early Christianity. And like, we go back to our, right, go back to our roots.
1: Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, we need to uh, go back to what Christ said, and we need to look at how the original churches worshipped. Uh, they worshipped quite differently than uh, we do today. And again, this is uh, one of the things that uh, drew me to to orthodoxy. And orthodoxy was, uh, I should mention, was not uh, known in America. It was when, when America was founded, there was no orthodoxy here at all. And it wasn't until the Bolshevik Revolution uh, which coincided with what's called the greek genocide when the turks expelled all greek christians and murdered hundreds of thousands of them that a uh, started coming over here so about 1920 uh, the russians and the greeks coming over here but they built churches but the churches were were, were conducting their services in the native tongues of greek and, and russian so americans could not get involved it's only in recent years that people like me and hank Hanegraaff, the uh, who used to be called the bible answer man we've started to recognize the value of of the Eastern Orthodox church. And again, I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes who's not Orthodox or pass judgment on them. I've been evangelical. I've been atheist. I've been new age. I've been all these things. I'm passing judgment on absolutely no one, but I, I do want people to know that there's some history and that there's been a continuance of miracles and that those miracles were done by people who were strictly obedient to Christ. There is no such thing. Um, in, um uh the Orthodox world and certainly not in the the world of the Bible as a casual believer these just are not uh parts of our Christian faith so we need to be very serious about our faith and uh as I say at the end of my, my book may God have mercy on us um because um this country has probably done more to corrupt the world with our Disney princess movies and our um you know our transgenderism and all these weird, weird things that were are uh, trying to spread throughout the world. Um, uh, we need uh, repentance within our country. And, um, you know, I, again, I, I, I beg God for his mercy upon us. Um, I, I look, you know, I, as someone who grew up in the 1950s as a child, I saw a completely different America, America that was prosperous. America that was not at war for 10 years between Korea and Vietnam. A, a a country that was completely uniform in its morals. We had a Christian moral outlook. There was no feminism, there was no transgenderism, there was no legal abortion, there was no homosexuality was done in dark closets, not out in the open like it is today. Um, this was once a pretty strong country. I'll have to say that, I'll say that. I think um, we were doing all right um, back in the 1950s, but uh, with the coming of the 60s and the Beatles and the Vietnam War, and uh lsd and um uh all, all of the things that manifest themselves during the 60s we begin our our uh, steady decline into the into the state we're in today it's a shame to see i was part of that you know i was i was a hippie back in the around 1970 but um it, it's um I, I thank god for giving me uh live, let allow me to live long enough to have perspective on this
0: stuff and see um how we've declined uh, over these many decades well i'm thankful that uh he allowed that as well and as always shining a light in the darkness is the great james perloff the book is missing saints missing miracles jamesperloff.com james thanks for being here always always
1: well, a pleasure, my friend well well, tony thank you uh, you know it's, it's people like you that give me a platform you know uh my book wouldn't be selling at all if it wasn't people like you um that uh give me a chance to speak on on uh these issues um so uh we're all working together against uh the uh satanic uh new world order that's uh uh you know tell me I did an interview I did an interview like two days ago it was posted on YouTube yesterday and uh within uh two hours is, is, <laughs> it was deleted from youtube I mean that's that's how how much the censorship is right now you know i mean we're we're up against uh truly a monolithic um satanic empire uh monolithic in terms of the control of banking healthcare, uh media governments intel services you name it um so thank you thank you very much for uh speaking the truth and giving others the opportunity to do so
0: thank you james always an honor to stand with you and uh we're we're here for a reason god put us here for mm-hmm. a reason leave at this time. I'm going to do my utmost to uh, to continue to talk about the things that matter. James Perloff, everybody, uh, go get the new book, Missing Saints, Missing Miracles, and all the rest of his books, because they're awesome. And uh, so is James. We'll see you next time. This has been Paratruther.
1: Okay. Thank you,
0: Paratruther. <laughs> Take care.